Hello and welcome to Theoretically Theatrical. In this series, we peek behind the curtain and explore the world of performance. Today, we're taking a look at managing creativity, understanding how creativity is managed and the systems that allow performances to happen the way they do is important for performers of all stripes. It's taken years of work to get to where the creative industries are today, and even now the systems are imperfect. So to prepare yourself, it's best to have some knowledge of how these things work. Now let's see who, in my big box of theorists, can help us out today. Good day. Richard Caves, you're just who I was hoping to find. It's getting a bit cramped in there. Marx has no sense of personal space. Sorry about that. I'll make sure to add an extension. Maybe a beaded curtain? I hear that you want to learn about how performances are organized. Yes, please. Then are you ready for a tour of Paradox Theatre? Lay on, Macduff. So what is the definition of managing creative industries? I'd say that it's when a scenario contains a substantial element of creative or artistic endeavor. Mind your head. Sorry. You mean like a play or a ballet or a musical? Yes. As the performing arts grow, then creativity must be managed differently. If you want to organize a production, then you have to be aware of these interconnected informal contracts. <laughs> that sounds like something out of a fantasy novel. A secret network of thespians. That isn't completely off the mark. These agreements are a key factor that created the structure of the performance community and its unspoken rules. How did you study this? I looked at the social structure through an economic lens, with the aim of explaining the patterns of organization. Mind your step there. Ah. The paint of the scenery is still wet. I may have smudged Big Ben. No, my masterpiece! We're going to pop into the box office and talk about cost disease. Oh, please tell me there isn't a new epidemic. I just got my vaccine. No, no. Cost disease is a reoccurring problem faced by productions. A show is a constant tightrope act, trying to balance the costs of production with what the public is willing to pay. When the cost of production goes up, but the audience can't or won't pay more, then you get a cost disease, and it becomes difficult for a production to cover fixed costs. Gosh, so how do you overcome it? They could try going down the donor-supported, non-profit organization route. This would address the problem of high fixed costs. Relying on ticket sales is no longer a viable option. That sounds like quite the juggling act. Speaking of which, we should keep going and meet up with the ringmaster of this circus. This is a theatre. It was a metaphor, Richard. Hello, and welcome to the nerve centre of the operation. This is Lillian Mary Bayliss, manager, producer, and all-round talented lady. <laughs> you flatter me. She was in charge of the Old Vic, Sandler's Well, and the English National Opera, so she knows everything there is to know about holding a production together. It's an honour to meet you. Can I ask you how you navigate the management of stage plays? <sighs> There's a big question. Well, the first problem could be summed up by Broadway's nickname, the Fabulous Invalid. Ouch. All singing, all dancing, and absolutely broke. It costs a boatload of cash to look this cheap. So how do theatre companies survive? Mm, well, a stage play has fairly straightforward cost structures around rehearsal and the full run of the production. However, cost disease increases the associated costs without increasing the public's desire or their ability to pay. And, you know, this results in fewer productions and those that do make it have to run for longer and sell more tickets to make back their investment. So, yeah. 
there's been a decline in the number of new productions per season. In 1920s America, there could be 48 musicals and 35 plays per season, but by the 80s, that number had dwindled to nine musicals and 17 plays. And when America sneezes, Britain catches a cold, so you can guess what it was like over here. Plays used to run for two or three weeks and make back their money, but by the 60s, that time had ballooned to like somewhere between 150 and 300 performances. A producer can't predict if a play is going to be successful, and a production can fall apart very quickly after opening. With all that in mind... How do you keep the lights on? Mm -hmm. Uh, With difficulty. And this is where the producers come in. They put together deals and negotiate royalties with playwrights. And uh, then they hire directors and actors and conductors and choreographers and financial backers and theatre spaces. And, you know, Uh, and then the theatre owners, they're expected to provide the stagehands and the ushers and the box office stuff. This is where the network of contracts comes into play. In the 19th century, playwrights typically received upfront payments. By the 20s, they received a maximum 10% of box office. The theatre owner, the director, and lead actors would also take a percent. Mm-hmm. By the 60s, an actor could make over a million dollars from this deal. Investors and the producer divide the net profits. The producer can also receive a share of the author's revenue depending on the run length of the show. You mentioned that these create bonds between the production team and crew. How do they do that? The way that these contracts are set up create incentive structures to ensure that the show does well, with a focus on revenue as opposed to profits. The producer, me, is incentivized to control the costs and maximise the profits, and the general managers supervise the daily operations of a show and keep the whole circus rolling. Thank you so much for making time to speak to us. Hey, no trouble at all. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have two tenors and a prima donna to track down. Where have they gone? All right, there they are. Donna! Donna! Come here! So, where to next? Maybe a quick coffee break? And a muffin. I hope they have the blueberry ones. Do you hear something? You two are coming with me. Ah, It's the opera ghost! Don't be silly. It's famous actress Dame May Witty. Oh, Yeah. Sorry. I was a bit confused by the organ music. Professor Caves, you are teaching them about performers' contracts? Yes, we were just about to- Then you must follow me. Why, Dame Maywitty? Because you cannot fully understand this world without seeing the unions. You you mean trade unions? Yeah, I'd love to learn more about them. Then climb aboard. When did they install an underground river in this theatre? Onwards to equity! Tell me, my child, what do you know about performers' unions? Well, I first came across the concept in Timothy West and Prunella Scales' wonderful book. They're a form of labour union, an association of people with the same job, and their main stated goal is to represent and protect their members. We must be united in the fight for fair terms and conditions. Dame Witty was one of the founders of Equity. It was originally set up in her living room. (laughs) That's amazing. So how do you help your members? The leaders of an actor's union will negotiate on their members' behalf with producers and other managers for pay rates, benefits, pay leave, and work hours. And what about equity appeals to performers? People join an actor's union for many reasons. To prevent pay exploitation, 
to ensure that their safety and well-being will be protected, to guard against discrimination, liability insurance and compensation, pensions and legal support. Are they a part of the structure of the performance community that Professor Caves mentioned? Somebody actually paid attention during my lecture. Joining a union can feel like you are cementing your place in a community. Many actors find it empowering because it creates a feeling of legitimacy and acts as a buffer against the historical stigma against choosing to become a performer. Above all, unions have come to represent safety for those that choose to become a member. What created the need for a union? Before actors unionized, there was virtually no protection for performers. At the time, many were part of touring repertory theatres. They would not be paid for rehearsal and were often expected to pay for their own costumes. They would have to make their own way to many parts of the tour. Particularly from the last venue back to the main theatre. If a show ended early, then performers would be stranded. It would do the act a little good if they tried to sue for compensation, because by the time it came to trial, they would likely be far away with another production. And on top of that, stagehands and musicians were already unionized and would come first in the queue. And the kick in the teeth was that there was frequently a satisfaction clause in an actor's contract. What would that mean? It allowed a manager to claim that an actor's performance was inadequate and fire them. Where did you come from? I thought you were with the tenors. They had no idea of what song they were supposed to be rehearsing. And to be honest, I'm not even sure they know what opera they're working on. How did you find us? Mm, if you wanted to be sneaky, then you probably should have stopped playing the organ music. Ah, I see the management has slithered down to grace us with her presence. Slithered? Now then, no need to be unpleasant. The best results come when we all work together. And I would quite like to give the audience a rounded view of the whole thing. Yeah, so put away the garrot wire, May. Your cloak and dagger act isn't fooling anyone. You didn't like my performance? No, no, no. You were very menacing. Really? No, yes. I was shaking in my boots. Why, thank you. Now, where was I? Ah, yes, the perils of being a travelling actor. All of the extra expenses and lack of protection meant that the actor was practically gambling their investment with each new production. That's awful. How exactly did the union start? Equity was founded as a reaction against the way that employers exploited incomplete contracts. Initially, we sought pay related to effort and to establish standardized contracts. We wanted a guarantee of two weeks notice and or two weeks salary. We needed a limit placed on the amount of unpaid rehearsal time and the actors would no longer be out of pocket for travel and costume cost. But, since the performing arts were on a shoestring budget, a group of producers retaliated by sponsoring a competing company union of actors. When we couldn't reach an agreement with the majority of theatre management, we had to declare a strike in 1919. Wouldn't that put your members at risk? You said that they were already struggling to make ends meet. We did set up a fund to rescue stranded actors. That's still risky. How long did the strike last? Thirty days. That must have been a very difficult decision. Why did you opt to strike? 
To get anywhere, we needed to get all producers on the same page. And everybody knows that's like herding particularly irritable porcupines. By striking, we were attempting to force them to make significant change. Eventually, in 1924, it was agreed that 80% of casts would be equity actors, but this was only after 90% of working actors became equity members. And then, following their theatrical brethren's example, film unions consolidated in the 1930s in reaction against their own contract failures. Were there differences in what the Film Actors Guild wanted? One of their main goals was to protect against unscrupulous agents. Protection seems to be a recurring theme here. There was no one else to stand up for us. So we had to lift each other up. And that means everyone. The actors' guilds had ideas of inclusivity and didn't try to limit membership to specific social groups. Interestingly, cinematographers and engineers unionized with the specific goal of sharing and preserving technical and creative knowledge. They seemed genuinely motivated to pass on their wisdom. Another reason why I absolutely adore engineers, hardworking and almost no diva tantrums. And who are you referring to when you say that? Uh, the director. He'll cry at the drop of a hat. Well, props can be expensive. By unionizing, engineers were then able to work with equipment manufacturers to set standards and negotiate to have their work properly credited. And that's the end of the canal. All ashore that's going ashore. Where's that coming from? There's a light over there. Come on! This feels like a stereotype. It's not a stereotype when we do it. We are the originals. <laughs> Looks like the tenors finally got it together. Too bad for a pair of numpties. All right, we've only got a few minutes before the show starts, so let's make this last question count, yeah? What's next for the management of performance? Creative products differ from other mass-produced commodities because they rely on aesthetic or artistic inputs. The hard work that goes into them should not be overlooked. Creativity needs and is creating new forms of management. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I'd say traditional hierarchical forms of management and control are crumbling under the demand for the mixed soft control of peer recognition, intrinsic motivation and like self-management. There really just isn't a singular answer for how we should proceed. You know, this whirlwind tour is just a starting point. Curtain up in one minute. We are not simply here to be consumed. The process of creating work can't be standardised. We solidify images and insights through our chosen medium, but success is dependent on our production teams. We need to communicate, to interact and adapt. The marriage between creativity and discipline is essential. We need to foster dialogue between performance and organization. There are still gaps in our knowledge of this area. Many of the different creative pursuits have developed different styles of management. Managing creativity is a paradox, but only if you look at it on the surface level. Our next step is not managing the process, but managing possibilities. Quiet backstage. Curtain up.
Thank you so much for listening. Caves was played by Alicia O'Donnell, Bayliss was played by Ellis Jameson, and the presenter and witty were played by Rosie Beach. This has been a Yorick Radio production. <laughs>